There were three frogs sitting on a log. One of them made a decision to jump in the pond. How many frogs were left on the log? Hold up your fingers and tell me how many you think. That's, somebody said zero in the early service. I don't figure that math out. But anyhow, I see zeros. I see twos. I see a couple threes. Three frogs on log. One made a decision to jump in the pond. How many are left? The answer is three. Because making a decision and doing something are two different things. They made a decision, but they didn't actually jump. They just made a decision to jump. Now, that analogy leads me to much internal difficulty because for 40 years, I've been sitting in churches listening to sermons that asked me to make decisions. And when I went to Bible college, I was taught when you prepare a sermon, you always want to have some decision you're trying to get the people to make by the end of that service, whether it's to put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior or whether it's to make a decision to have a happy marriage or some other thing, but you're, you're asking them to make a decision. So for 40 years when I wasn't preaching those kinds of sermons, I was listening to them. And I'm making decision after decision after decision. Most of the time, if it's a challenging message, I listen, and I'm like ready to charge the hill if somebody would show me where the hill was. But I don't remember anybody ever giving me a plan of action. So almost all my decisions turn out to be like our New Year's resolutions. We make a New Year's resolution. I'm, I'm going to whip myself into shape this year. I'm, I'm making a decision. I'm going to drop 30 pounds ugly fat, cut my head off. Yeah. But if all we do is make a decision and we don't really have a plan of action to carry it out, nothing ever happens. Kind of scary. So I feel like the church has been great, not this church, but the church as a whole has been great at giving challenging messages, but we've been less than great with giving you the plan and structure to move from decision to action, and without action, decisions are worthless. So I've titled this message today, uh, Keys to Discipleship, and we're going to pick up where Jerry left off last week in the book of Acts, but we're going to do a little recap along the way. But the first thing I want to share with you is Paul's mission trip, which is where we're at in the book of Acts. He's on his first missionary journey where he traveled some 1,500 miles in this first trip over probably a year and a half period of time, visited a whole bunch of places, shared the gospel. And that mission trip is really a microcosm of our life. The mission trip is like a, a shorter picture of what every one of our lives is like. So I want to take a look at what I mean by that and show you a couple of scriptures. Paul's mission trip starts with a divine plan. In Acts 13, 2 and 3, the Bible teaches us there that the elders of the church had gathered together and they were praying. I think we have that passage for you. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Notice who initiated this. Paul and Barnabas weren't like saying, oh, gee, what is God's will for my life? 
They just had to show up. You show up and surrender, God showing you his plan is his job. Almost everybody wants to know what's God's will for my life. What does he have for me? Is there a divine plan? Is there more than I know now? How could my life really make a difference in this world? And yes, he does have a plan, and yes, your life can make a difference. But you're going to have to show up and surrender. And when you do, the Holy Spirit will start nudging people around you. He'll start nudging you. You'll have people drop comments like, have you ever thought about, man, what a radio voice you have. You have a face for radio. Anyway, the Spirit said, if I were going to title the book of Acts, I would call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because all through the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit initiates everything. And the disciples just follow along. They just do what they were told. And that's really our role in life. In fact, Bay Life's mission is this. The mission of Bay Life Church is to surrender to God as he makes disciples through us here and around the world. We just surrender. He steers us where he wants us. He moves the pieces, parts around where we'll be the most useful. So... The Spirit says, I want you to tag these guys. I got something for them to do. This plan continues. Look at the next verse. Then after fasting and praying, the elders laid their hands on them, Paul and Barnabas, that is, and sent them off. Shoe boys, go along. God's got something for you to do. Get moving. Look at the next verse. We continue to do God's will when we do the plan. And so the Scriptures say they went. They laid hands on them. The Spirit said, I want these guys to go. They went. They said, we can't surrender and ask you what you want us to do, and then when you tell us what to do, not do it. We've got to just go do what you've called us to do. Okay? And then being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down, and it tells where they started their journey. And then, like our lives, this mission trip ends with an accounting. Oh, yeah, let's go here first. Man, these slides are helpful. The journey is filled with both good and bad stuff, and so is our lives. Last week, we saw that they healed somebody on their journey, and they all came out and wanted to worship them. This week, it's not going to be so nice. There's good and bad in every journey. And then finally, the trip ends. In Acts 14, 26, and 27, they went back to where they started, to Antioch. And the Scriptures say, from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. They had fulfilled. It's interesting, at the end of Jesus' life in John 17, 3, as he prayed right before the crucifixion, he said, I have fulfilled the work you've sent me to do. That really ought to be the longing of every one of our hearts that when we get to the end of our life, we can say, I've fulfilled what you sent me to do. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So at the end of their trip, they come back and they give an accounting, just like we will do. The Bible says in Romans 12, every one of us will give an account of ourselves before God one day. 
So we're given this great gift of life. God's got a plan for our lives. All we got to do is show up and surrender and be useful to find out what that plan is. We carry out our lives as good and bad. And we end our days and we go give an accounting for what we did here. Because this is true, our entire life's purpose is for us to align our wills with God's will. Because this is true, my greatest battle is with self-centeredness, self-will, my personal willfulness, my hard-headedness, my desire to live the way I want to live with nobody telling me what to do. That's why I like it when Mark says, got an open Sunday, go do your thing. I almost turned this opportunity down because he said, I'm giving you this Acts 14, 19 and following. Here's the title of your sermon, which I changed. Preach that passage. I wanted to say thanks, but no thanks. But I thought, you know what? I'm learning a new way. I'm learning to humble myself and surrender. So I will do what I'm told with joy. So Jesus put it this way. You can do life any way you want to do it. But if you hold on to your life, in other words, you're not willing to surrender it to my will. You, you want to live your own willful way. I will allow you to do that, but I want you to know up front, you will lose your life. If you open your palms and you surrender your life, and you make it your purpose to line your will up with my will, then Jesus said, you will find your life. So let's keep going. How do we do that? How do we find our lives? Well, God's will for all of us is to surrender. I want to show you two extremes of the surrender spectrum, and then I'm going to fill it in. Uh, God's will is our surrender. On one end of the spectrum, we have fickle followers. On the other side, we have fearless followers. I'm going to show you these in our passage. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying, in Lyconian, the gods have come down. This was last week. Remember if you were here? Paul and Barnabas healed some guy's leg, and these people saw them do that, and Jerry filled in on all the history of that, and they wanted to offer sacrifice to these guys. Next verse. They called Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Let's keep moving. Now we're into my, my sermon this week. Acts 14, 19. Paul and Barnabas left that town, and they moved about 75 miles away. But these Jews came all the way from Antioch and Iconium, like 75 miles away, just to harass them. Just so you understand what this is like, this is kind of like going to a Donald Trump rally and have Bernie Sanders followers in the crowd. Not to get political. But Paul and Barnabas are just trying to preach the gospel and help people, and these Jews are antagonistic, following along, infiltrating the crowd. And look at what happened. These are some of the same people last week 
They were saying, we believe you. We want to offer sacrifices to you. But now the Jews came and persuaded the crowds. These are the ones that say, we'll sacrifice. And now they're saying, give me a rock. And they threw rocks at Paul and stoned him. Threw rocks till he was unconscious. Some scholars believe he actually died and had an out-of-body experience recorded in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, whether in the body or not, I don't know, but I went up to the third heaven and saw things that no man should see. Because of that, God put a thorn in my flesh to keep me humble. He pleaded with God, remove that thorn three times, but he said, no, my grace will be sufficient for you. These guys went from waving palm branches on Palm Friday for Jesus to hollering crucify him the same week. Same crowd, not same crowd, but same mindset. Went from, we're not worthy to get out of here. They're the fickle followers. Now, look at what Paul did. Paul stoned, drug out of the city, supposing he was dead. Next verse. When the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, wait a minute, he did what? The disciples gathered about him, probably had a little prayer meeting. God, you got to heal your man here. He's on a mission you sent him on. We think he might be dead. Paul comes to, jumps to his feet, and said, let's go back in and do it some more. Let me back at him. I, I, got, I got to finish this sermon. So he's the other end of the spectrum. He's a fearless follower. And I want to show you the only difference between a fickle follower and a fearless follower is the level of our surrender. And so I'm filling in all across, starting with the fickle follower. Let's go to the pie charts. A fickle follower may have said, wow, I believe that Jesus died for me, was buried and rose from the grave. I want to go to heaven when I die. I sure don't want to fry like sausage in a pan. So I, I'll take Jesus. That's what the preacher's offering. I, I accept Jesus. And when you leave that service, that's all you know. You don't know what it means to be a Christian. You don't know what it means to be a Christ follower. All you know is what he said is if I accept Jesus, I'm going to be saved. And I want to be saved, so I'm going to take that. So the level of your surrender is that sliver. The little, is that blue? I'm colorblind. The blue, purple, magenta, whatever color that is. That little sliver is all the surrender you have. All the rest of your life now, you're running. You're running your marriage, your finances, everything. So the more we surrender and move across this spectrum, it takes time. And usually failure. Because for me to pry my fingers loose of some area of my life that I think I can manage usually takes me running my rock-hard head into a brick wall to where I will say, okay, God, I think you want to manage my finances now. Now that I'm bankrupt, now that my three cars just were towed away, repossessed, maybe it's time that you help me learn how to handle my money. That's the way I roll. I don't know why I'm so stinking hard-headed, but next slide. 
So as we grow a little bit and maybe we have a financial disaster and we go to Financial Peace University and learn how to handle our money in a biblical way and we surrender that to God, He starts managing more of the pie. We're still managing a pretty good chunk, but we've surrendered more. Next slide. As we grow, we become more serious. We've had more calamities. We've surrendered more things. Now, guess which part of the pie usually runs smoother? The part God is managing. He seems to do way better at managing my life than I do. But as we grow, we become committed followers of Jesus Christ. And now the whole pie chart's turned around. We've surrendered all this stuff, our money, our job, our career, how we climb the ladder, the way we take care of ourselves physically, spiritually, emotionally. We've given it to God, but we still got a couple things in reserve. You know, still kind of thinking, well, I probably can handle this one. May not be anything bad. May just be something you want to manage. And then finally, the fearless follower, I left a sliver in reserve because even if I surrender everything I know to surrender today, I don't know everything. And I don't know what I don't know. And so there's always something that God needs to teach me yet, and something will come up sure enough that he'll teach me. So all of life, God's goodness and all our sufferings, I believe, are designed to bring us to fuller surrender. And the more fully we surrender, what you will discover is you will discover more peace, less fighting about stuff, and more power in your personal life. And I'm going to give you a couple of personal illustrations of things I've had to slam my head into the brick wall to surrender, and I'm going to move through this quickly. But when I was young, I I came to know Jesus Christ. I made that first little pie sliver decision when I was 21 years old. So by then, 21 years old, all my life patterns already formed. All my belief system, all my thoughts about life and everything were already in place. I'm already operating. Now I make a decision to accept Jesus. Guess what? All that changed was now I got Jesus in this messed up life. So one of the very first things I came to realize was I got married at 19, became a Christian at 21. So I already had two good years of messing up a marriage. And what I began to discover was my entire view of women was based on what I learned in the locker room and what I learned through pornography. In other words, I had no clue who I was married to. I wasn't viewing her at that point as God's daughter entrusted to me to nurture and love and spend my life with. I viewed her the way pornography views women. It's written by men for men, by the way, guys, in case you're confused on that. Most ladies are not doing housework totally naked, just can't wait for you to come home. That's a mythological being. There's not many of them out there, I don't think. Our wives are emotional and complex, and we need to learn who they are as people and value them as people. They're not sex objects. And so God had to break me of what I had learned and teach me a 
total different way of viewing my wife and valuing my wife as a fellow saint who's on her way to heaven, and one day we're going to sing in the heavenly choir together and walk the streets of gold together. We're joint heirs with Jesus, travel on life's road. And I asked the Monday night men, I lead the men's group here, and we meet Mondays, not tomorrow because it's holiday, but the next week, men, come and join us, and we'll teach you all this stuff. But I asked the men one Monday night just to see how warped they were. <laughs> I said, men, if it comes across as really strange to you to pray with your wife during physical relations, then your view is probably corrupt. God is the creator and designer of the sexual relationship within marriage, and he intended it to be icing on the cake for two people who have committed heart, soul, and body together for life. And it's a spiritual, physical blending of two people and the most beautiful thing possible, and it's God-designed and God-honored and God-blessed. So why would it be strange to involve him in it? It's strange because our culture, our society, and everything we learned is so corrupt. One of the other big things, second big things that God brought me to a different level of surrender. And while I'm telling these stories, what I want you to do is identify where would you say you are today on this surrender spectrum? When I became a Christian, I was an athletic kid. I played sports all my life. I was highly super competitive. And to me, second place was first place loser. If I didn't win, if I didn't think I could win, I didn't even want to play. And so we'd go to, we became Christians, and our church had these picnics, and they'd have softball games. And, I mean, they'd say, so are the women, kids, and men playing? I'd say, we don't want any women and kids playing. I said, men, man, we're going to compete. Now all the wives and kids are playing, too. I'm like, oh, jeez. And I'm, like, cheering my team, and, come on, man, we got to win. And I'm out there all out. I mean, head first, sliding into second, taking out women and everything else. then I was like 22, and I'm playing in a church basketball league tournament. And some guy gave me a hard time, and I was an amateur boxer too, so I just cold cocked him. Ref throws me out. Number one, you're out of the tournament. I always wore number one, usually because I was the smallest guy on the team. But there was a big dog in the little guys. I thought I was number one. Got thrown out of church softball, basketball, just because of that highly competitive thing. And God used those running my head into the brick wall to say, is this really that serious? Maybe you need to lighten up a little bit, son. But for me, I was broken inside. And for me, everything was riding on everything. I had to win. Otherwise, I would prove I was the failure I thought I was. Last one I'm going to share with you is I, I kind of believed as a Christian I could drink alcohol like everybody else. I grew up in north central Pennsylvania. There was a pub on every corner. Uh, we had a big family, five uncles and an aunt on my mom's side. She had five brothers and a sister. 
Fourth of July was one of my favorites, man. My, I can still see in my mind's eye my Uncle Bob rolling the keg in the backyard, 11 o'clock, Fourth of July morning, just to tap it and test it. I remember having sips of Dad's beer when I was in a diaper. And the first time I remember, like, crossing the line, I was about eight years old. We were at my grandmother's house for Christmas. All the aunts and uncles and adults were out in the living room drinking. All the cousins were out in the kitchen drinking soft drinks. And all the adults kept coming into the kitchen, getting in this cabinet, getting something, putting in their drinks, putting back under there. And the kids are all sitting there, and, and they're saying, so what are they doing under there? I said, I don't know. I was always a little daredevil risk taker. I said, I'm going to find out. So I look out in the living room, nobody coming, sneak under the cabinet, got all these pretty bottles under there. So I open one, fill our drinks a little bit, put it back. That night when we got home, I think we got home, I go to bed and had this strange thing happen. The whole bedroom just started spinning. Next thing you know, I'm getting sick, and I throw up on the floor, and my dad comes in. He says, Scotty, what is wrong? I said, I don't know, Dad. I guess he could smell it. He said, uh, what were you drinking tonight? I said, I don't know, Dad. It was whatever you guys had under the cabinet there. But the worst part was I liked it. And so all through junior high school and high school, as kids started experimenting with drinking, man, I was right in the thick of it. Got arrested in high school for underage drinking. We got out of it somehow. But then uh, my wife and I became Christians at 21, and we joined this fundamental Baptist church that believed in no alcohol, teetotalers. So we totally quit. Next thing you know, I'm off to Bible college, become a pastor. I went from 21 to 47. Never had a drink. Never had a sip. I don't even think I took a sniff. But, man, you talk about some doll parties. Those Baptists, man. Catholic weddings were way more fun than the ba Baptist ones. And ice cream and iced tea is not a real stimulant for great parties. But anyway, when we moved to Florida at age 50, I was no longer a pastor and no longer in the fishbowl, studied the Bible from cover to cover, and Baylife's position is moderation in alcohol use. It's a sin to be drunk. It's not a sin to have a drink. So I said, you know what? What difference does it make now? So occasionally my wife and I would have a glass of wine when we're on a date. Well, at first we actually split a glass of wine on a date. And I'm going to tell you, that just made me thirstier. I wanted my own. And sometimes, like, I would get the carafe or half a carafe of wine, which is like two glasses, and my wife always gets a small one. She'd drink about half of it and leave it. I'm drinking it and looking at hers, saying, man, that's alcohol abuse to leave that. We paid for that. Here, I'll drink it. Drinking just made me thirstier. It was kind of like I started having difficulty finding where the moderation line was. I set limits on myself, but then I'd violate my own limits. And I'm in the corporate world now, and there's a lot of open bar things I go to and a lot of opportunities to 
be away where you don't have to drive and you're in a hotel and it's open bar this and open bar that and somebody wants to buy you a drink because they're vendors. And it, I found it really too easy to violate really my own standards. So I, I came and talked to Mark about it one day and he said, man, talk to me about moderation. That line sometimes can be really fuzzy. For me, it was like you know, I've heard people say that struggle in other areas. I, I would get out a half a gallon ice cream to have a couple bites and end up when I was done, the whole thing's gone. How did that happen? Or get out a bag of cookies or chips and, and tend to only have a handful. But by the time you're done, you're like looking at the bottom of the bag and it's empty. How did that happen? Well, that's the way I was with alcohol. Really, I only meant to have two. How did I do that again where I had way too many? So for me, I determined I, I just need to go back to the 27 years of abstinence and skip the moderation idea. My wife was a little concerned at one point about my drinking, and she said she's not a nagger. But she said to me, it looks to me like you're drinking more than you used to. And like any self-respecting man, I said, why don't you mind your own business? You know, I'll manage my drinking. I know the Lord. He's got my life in control. Well, that is always a recipe for disaster to me. When I say, I'll manage this piece of the pie. I got this under control. It's not long the Lord says, okay, you think you got it? Have at it. And I crossed the line and embarrassed myself. And the Lord used that failure to say, enough's enough. You ready to surrender that area to me? Will you let me manage that? And by then, I'm ready. Why I got to be smacked around, beat down, drugged through the knot hole backwards? Because I am willful. All right, moving right along. Once you choose to follow Christ with your life, it's all about degrees of surrender. How much are you willing to let go of? Here we go. Action steps to take your next steps in surrender. Uh, in our scripture today, it says, After preaching the good news in Derby and making many disciples, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia, where they strengthened the believers. So they, on the return trip, stopped back in to visit some of the towns to revisit people. And I thought, man, I would love to hear what Paul said to these Christians to strengthen them because... He knows he's leaving them. He's going to leave them on their own. What would he tell them? You know, it's like an hour discipleship class. What would the great apostle tell these people? Fortunately, it's here for us. And like all preachers, he gives us three things he did. So I'm going to hit them real quick. They encouraged them to continue in the faith. And we have this. I want you to see the scripture. It is verse 23. Well, they're looking for that. They encourage them to continue in the faith. 23A, I believe it is. Whenever you see the word the in front of the faith in the Bible, it is 23A. 
The the is called a definite article, and it's not talking about your personal faith, but it's talking about what your faith is in, the object of your faith, the faith. And so in this particular context, at this point in church history, what the faith was is the simple gospel message they put their faith in. So I want to make sure you're clear on what the gospel message is and what it means when we share the gospel. And what it means when you go on a mission trip to do gospel ministry. True or false? Going to the mission field and painting a building is gospel ministry. In my opinion, it's false. You're doing a great work. You're doing a service work. But if you're not sharing the message, and I don't mean by being nice and doing good stuff. I mean by verbally sharing the message because it's only by hearing the gospel message that people can embrace it. And the gospel message, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel message. It is the message whereby we're saved. And that message is simple and clear. And it's this, 1 Corinthians 15, 2 through 4. The verse before this says, uh, talking about the gospel, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Next verse. Here is the gospel. Probably the clearest place the gospel is laid out in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For I delivered to you, As of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That is the double-barrel blast of the gospel message that saves us. One side of the barrel is Jesus died for your sins and mine. The other side is He rose from the grave, and through that resurrection, God said, I accept payment in full. And now you're back to life and you have new life to give to all these people who accept you. You can fill their lives with the Spirit and give them a new power and a new life. It's so serious that in Galatians 1.8, the same writer, Paul, said, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed. And that means damned forever. Serious business. You receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior is like putting the engine in the car. So, once we have Christ in our lives, then we can do gospel ministry. We share that message with others so that they can hear it, believe it, and accept Christ themselves. But we also do gospel works, which would be the good fruit of the gospel which is we serve other people, we love our neighbors ourselves, we paint buildings, we build buildings, we feed home, homeless people. But don't confuse those good works with sharing the gospel. Almost everybody I would talk to would say, I would rather paint the building. And guess what? The enemy would rather you paint the building too, as long as you keep your mouth shut. Because once you open your mouth and you share the gospel and they understand the gospel, now we got a 
a battle going on for the souls of men, which is the ultimate prize. I'll probably get some feedback on that later, but that's all right. So the way I see it right here, we got two possible errors. The first one is, in our American culture, there are TV preachers everywhere and preachers where we lead you to make that decision to accept Christ as your Savior. And kind of like me in that early slide, that's the only thing you know so far. You've made that choice. You said, I will sacrifice, I'll surrender my eternal destiny to the Lord. I'm taking His remedy for it, Jesus Christ. But then you just stay seated on that log. You never go to church. You never get involved in anything. You never speak a word to anybody else about your faith. You never even bother reading your Bible. You never develop it. You know you got your ticket to heaven right there in your wallet, and that's all you care about. And I would say to you, you have every reason to doubt whether that decision was true. Because God puts the engine in the car when you make that decision so the car will run. The first real danger is thinking you've made that decision, but you've seen no action, no life change. That wasn't a very good decision. The second error is this. You come to church a little bit, this whole gospel thing's really fuzzy to you. You've never personally invited Christ into your life as your Savior but you hear a plea that we need workers in children's ministry, we need somebody to go on a mission trip, we need chaperones here, there, we need voices in the praise band, you jump in. You bypass the decision, but you start serving. You're like a car with no engine, coasting downhill in neutral. And all you're doing is serving in your own power, and I will guarantee I've watched it thousands of times, you're not going to be around long. Somebody's going to tick you off. Man, I almost said another word. Somebody's going to make you mad. Somebody's not going to recognize everything you're doing to make this place better. You're going to lose heart, and because you're only doing it in your own strength, you're going to say, the heck with them. I'm going to the crossing. They'll appreciate me there. Well, no more than we do. It'll just be the same old story over and over same song, second verse. It's a great danger. Two big errors there. So make sure, Paul says, when he went back, he knew that what drove him, why he got up and went back into that town after being stoned, was he knew about his encounter on the Damascus Road in Acts 9. He knew he came face to face with Jesus Christ. He, that was settled in him. That decision was in rock, and it fueled his the rest of his life. Next thing he tells them, getting them ready to be on their own, make sure your engine's there. How about you today? Are you absolutely positive by faith you've received what Christ did for you on the cross? Your sin's forgiven. You've got new power in your life to help you change. And you've got new desires that are planted in there. Next thing he tells them is you, got, you better prepare to face suffering. 
1422b. Prepare to face suffering. He said, I want to remind you that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. A lot of people think when we accept Jesus, man, now it's supposed to be gravy, isn't it? It's supposed to be like smooth sail and the rest of the way. I hear Christians whining all the time, why is this happening to me? I'm thinking like, why do you think you're exempt? Every Christian's going to suffer, every Christian's going to get sick and ultimately die. We are just as prone to financial disaster as the next guy. Stock market crashes can kill you just like it could anybody else. People die at all ages, from babies to adulthood, and we don't know when our number's up. True of Christians, true of non-Christians. Paul said, you better prepare for suffering because it will come, and don't allow that to deter you from your faith. So many people have something bad happen, and they walk away mad at God. Where were you? Well, he's right there waiting to hold your hand through it. The last thing he told him is, uh, this thing's too tough to leave you on your own. So in every city, it says, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders. Verse 23, appointed elders in every church. So now what we have is a structure, a training program, and some leadership so you don't have to do it on your own. Let me ask you a question. When you started going to church or you became a Christian, how many of you had somebody come alongside of you, put their arm around you, and say, you know what? You're getting ready to learn a whole new way of life, and I'm going to be with you on this journey. In fact, I will mentor you for the next year to two and teach you what it looks like to be a Christ follower. Let me see your hand if somebody did that for you. In every service, thank you. Out of probably six, seven, eight hundred people, this service had maybe eight hands I saw. Last night had five. Second, first service today had a handful. I want you to know that Baylife knows this is an issue because when Jesus called the 12, he spent three years with those guys pouring into them to teach them his way. What do we get? We get... Mark this card that you're accepting Jesus in your life, and good luck. But Baylife has seen this as an issue, and um, starting next Sunday, if you would like to learn how to disciple others, we're going to have a discipler training class. And if you would like to be discipled, we have a bunch of people that have gone through this training that are, are now ready to work one-on-one -on -one with other people to help you learn what it looks like to be a Christ follower. All right, a couple years ago, I had a gentleman come into my life, and at 60 years old, after being a Christian for 39 years, for the first time in my life, I had a man say, I'm going to help you learn what it looks like to live your life in a new way. And he asked me, what are you willing to do? to live your life in a way that would honor God. And I said, I am willing to do whatever it takes. And he said, that's good because that's the only answer that I'll work with you. 
And this gentleman took me under his wing, and for the next several months, he taught me what it looked like to surrender my life as fully as I know how to the Lord. He helped me to get right with God in a way that I never even knew as a pastor. And then he helped me get right with myself. Because I I knew I was forgiven before, but I didn't feel forgiven. Because I knew where I'd been. I know everything I've done. And he helped me work through all that garbage and come to a place of feeling like I was forgiven. And then he taught me what it looked like to make things right with everybody I've hurt in my life. And then he showed me how messed up I was and uh, how much uh, self-centeredness there was in my life and how much those rough edges needed to be smoothed away and taught me how in, in every situation when I'm suffering or things are not going my way or I'm having a fight with my wife, to not look at my wife, my job, all the stuff out there, but to turn my look inside and say, what is it about me that I'm irritated in this situation? And he taught me that when I'm irritable or discontented or anything else, if I'm upset, then I'm the one with the problem and I need to correct it. Man, I wished I would have had that when I was 20. So now I start every day and have for probably the last year and a half this way. Here's a simple daily strategy. If you don't have anybody to disciple you yet, but you want to be discipled, If you have the engine in you, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I encourage you to get up every day and do what I'm going to tell you. I've always wanted a silver bullet. I wanted one quick fix. It would whip me into shape, and I'd be good to go. But I've never found it, but I'm going to tell you this is the closest thing I've come to it so far. I've had the most consistency, the most surrender, the most joy and peace, the most power in my life, the last year and a half that I've ever had and the whole rest of the journey, and I've started each day this way. What I've learned is I get a 24-hour reprieve. I don't have yesterday. I can't fix that. I don't have tomorrow. It's not here yet. What I have is today. So I wake up, and I start the day while I'm still in bed usually. As soon as I come to, I say, okay, God, I surrender this day fully to you. Just for today, you can have me. Just for today, this 24 hours, my will is going to be the best I can surrender to do your will. The second thing I pray is, God, during this day, anything that goes wrong, will you use that struggle, will you use that situation, and would you remind me of it when it happens so I don't revert to myself? Will you use that to teach me What needs to change in me? The third thing I ask him is this. Would you bring somebody into my life today that I can serve with no expectation of return? I hate to tell you, folks, I was a pastor for nearly 20 years, and I'm just learning about serving. Churches ruin pastors. If I was senior pastor of this church and you're in here setting up chairs and I came in to help, 
some well-meaning man would say, you're the pastor. You shouldn't be helping set up chairs. And I'd say, yeah, you're right. Go ahead. Pastor, here's the pastor. Go to the head of the food line. Sure, thank you. You start getting this entitled mindset, like you're somehow different. What I'm learning is I'm no better, I'm no worse, I'm just one of. So I ask God, bring somebody into my life that I can serve with no expectation of return. And what that does is gets you outside of your own self. You're not looking at all your junk, you're not worried about your problems. You're kind of walking through life like, what am I supposed to do? Who's it going to be? What's going to happen? It's been amazing over this year and a half, the number of people that God puts in my life, and I get this little prompting. All right, here it is. You ask me. There's times I totally forget I said the prayer, but God never forgets. And He's with me all the time, and so He's got a way of nudging me out of my slumber. He nudges me out of my self-will and my self-control and says, no, 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 remember? You surrendered your life to me today, and I need you right now. Here it is. I want to tell you a couple stories quick, and I'll be done. Brenton Shepard said, when I said that last time, I should have said, sit back and relax, because it's going to be a few minutes. So I had a, one of my married daughters and her two children, ages like 19 months and four months, living with us for several months. My daughter had to have a surgery, and it was going to be in Leesburg, and my wife and I talked about it. And she said, why don't you take a day off work, get up early, take her to Leesburg, hour 45 minutes away, stay with her during the surgery, bring her home. I'll stay here and watch the two kids. I thought, that sounds like a winning end of the stick to me. I had to leave at 4 in the morning. We get up there at 7.30. We check her in. The, the counter says, you'll be out of here by 12.30, lunchtime. I said, awesome. Get me home in good time. 5.30 when I'm walking across the parking lot at the hospital to get in my car. I'm thinking an hour and 45-minute ride in traffic. I can't wait to get home and hit the recliner and put my feet up. That's my thinking. Spirit of God goes, remember that prayer this morning, something about serving others? Do you think your wife, who's been home wrestling two yard apes all day, might, might like to sit down and put her feet up when you get home tonight? I had an hour and 45 minutes to surrender and to say, okay, Lord. And I'm going to tell you, anybody that knows me knows this isn't me. I came home, and I came in the house, gave my wife a hug, scooped up the kids, put them in the double-seated stroller, and got them out of the house. I'm sure when I walked out the door, my wife went, Whew. took him for a long walk, got him calmed down. They were both crying when I got home. I mean, not home from the walk, but home from the hospital. So I took him out the door crying, brought him back, calmed down, gave him both their baths, got him ready for bed, and put him to bed. And then got to sit down. You know what? I felt really, really, really good inside. And I didn't say, okay, baby, you owe me. It was just what God wanted me to do at that moment to serve my wife. Another story was just back, I think it was May, maybe. I have a son and his wife in Virginia, and they have two girls, seven and five. 
and they were down for vacation, came to Florida, and they're staying at our house. We're having a staycation. I took off work a few days. My daughter and her two babies were still there, so now my other daughter that lives in Florida was over there all week, so we had six adults and four kids, and we're used to being empty nesters. And they're there from morning breakfast till I fall into the bed at night. They're all hanging out. Most of them stay in there, a couple going home. But I noticed, like, after every meal, my wife's whipping up all these meals for all these people, dishes everywhere, and she's back there doing all the dishes. And after a, after a couple sessions of this, I'm sitting on the recliner looking at all my kids out in the swimming pool playing, I'm thinking, we failed as parents. What is wrong with all these kids that they don't even think to help their mom with the dishes? Did you hear where I said I was? I'm on the recliner pondering all this deeply. What is wrong with these heathen children of mine? They're all out there relaxing while their mother's working. And again, it was like, boom, boom, boom. Son, remember that prayer you prayed this morning about serving somebody? Why don't you go model what it looks like and start doing some dishes? And I've done a lot of dishes over the past stretch, I'm telling you. But you know what? I felt good. It was the right thing. I go through every day now. After saying those three parts of the prayer, asking for one more thing. As I go through the day and I come to a fork in the road, Lord, would you show me the next right thing to do? All I have is right now, today, to honor God to surrender my will to his will. It happens moment by moment throughout the day. What is the next right thing for me to do today? I will guarantee you, whether you have anybody to disciple you or not, if you can practice this for the next several months and really mean it, and if you have, a, have the engine in you, if you've received Christ as your Savior, his spirit lives within you, and you know what it is for him to communicate and some of you are saying, God can't talk to you like that. I want to tell you something. I got a dog that I can look at, and that dog communicates to me. I know when that little squirt wants to go out to go to the bathroom just by the way he looks at me and spins around. I know when it's his time to eat. It's like he's got an internal clock. He knows when he eats every day. And he'll look at me, and he's like, what are you doing? I'm ready to eat. Let's go, Jack. So I'm thinking if, if my little six-pound Yorkie can look at me and communicate with me and I know what he means, why can't the God of the universe communicate with my spirit and I know what he means? So you need to learn to hear that voice. And when you surrender, it will become very active. So I got one more. I'm thinking I'm as surrendered as I know how to do. I'm just waiting, Lord, I guess you'll have to show me because I don't know what else to surrender. So five weeks ago today on Memorial Day weekend, I come to church. All I remember out of that sermon was Mark said somewhere in that sermon, you all be careful now because man, some of you may even get in an accident before you go home today. I left service, crawled on my nice shiny blue Harley that used to sit right out front. Thought, I'm going to go for a little joy ride before I go home for lunch. 
Went over by the Mango Chapel that we have now at Bay Life. I actually talked to one of our musicians sitting in a red light. He said, man, that's a beautiful bike. I said, man, I love it. I left him and like five minutes later got took out by an elderly lady that decided to make a left turn into me. My last scene, not to be dramatic, but she comes across like this and I laid it down and plowed into her car and dismounted the bike. Got bruised like crazy here where the handlebars caught me on the dismount. And I recall laying in the street in front of her car with both hands on the bumper, kind of doing like a chin-up where I'm not dragging on the road. She's still moving. I see her front wheel coming at me thinking I dare not let go. And she finally stopped, and I rolled twice and sprung right to my feet like the nimble gymnast I am. And, w and while I'm standing there, I'm thinking I should not be standing up yet because I don't even know how badly I'm hurt. And I looked down, and my left shoe was gone. And I looked back, and it was laying way back in the road. And my bike was way back there, all bent up. And I looked forward, and there's my wallet. Flew out of my back pocket, my sunglasses way up the road. And no, I didn't have a helmet on, and no, I don't need any more sermons about that. I got off the road and sat down in the shade. Hear a siren. I thought, fire truck? No, it's an ambulance. And they came and uh, asked me a bunch of questions, who's president and all that stuff. And as soon as I got up, they said, can you walk to the ambulance? I thought I could. I got up and I said, that foot's broke. As soon as I stepped on it, I knew it. And I have a third degree separation in my left shoulder. I had a little road rash here on my arm, bruises, boogered up a little bit. But I'm glad to be here today. But guess what? I'm laying in the back of the ambulance. After calling my wife and telling her I wrecked the bike, she's meeting me at the hospital. I'm in the back of the ambulance, and I'm laying there thinking, it's funny, I thought I just bought this shirt the day before. This is what I had on when I had to wreck. I wore it on purpose today. Didn't even tear anything. I thought, man, I hope I didn't mess that shirt up. I really like it. That was like my second thought after I wonder how bad I'm hurt. I hope I didn't hurt my shirt. Anyway, I'm laying in the back of the ambulance, and the Spirit of God nudges me again. He said, son, it's not wrong to have a motorcycle, but let's reflect on how you bought this one. I inherited some money. My mom died about three years ago. I got some money, and... I'm the sole breadwinner of our family and have been for many years. And I'm thinking, you know what? Everybody's spending all my money all the time. I would like to have a motorcycle. So the heck with everybody else. I think I'm going to buy me a Harley. Talked to my wife about it a little bit. She said, that's not what I would buy, but, you know, it's your mom's money, so do what you want to do. I thought, that sounds like a green light to me. <clears throat> so I went down and bought it. I think she was somewhat startled when they dropped it off at the house, put it in my shed. She, she did say, I never really thought you would do it. She was not a great fan of the decision, and my mother would have rolled over in her grave if she could have saw it. She would have hated the idea. But my wife and I had a really good talk when I'm laying in the emergency room at the hospital, and she said, 
babe, I always wanted you to have a good time on your bike. And she'd always say, enjoy the ride, be safe. But she said, today when you called, I want, I want you to know that was my second most feared call. My first most feared call was somebody would call and say, would you come and identify him? And she said, when you would leave out on your bike for a ride, she said, I'd always pray for you, tell you to have a good time. But inside, she said, it was kind of like sending a, your husband off to war. I wasn't sure you were coming back. And she said, when I heard that rumble coming down the street, it was always like I could sigh a breath of relief. And what the Lord showed me was, you know what, son, that was a really, really, really selfish choice. You spent a whole lot of money on something that only you could enjoy and was going to cause a whole lot of other people to be worried about you. So he didn't spank me too hard, but he just used it to show me, again, how easily I can get the world revolving around me and what I want and how selfish I am when I don't really surrender. And at that point when I bought it, I, I really was in a frame of mind of like the heck with everybody. I'm doing what I want to do. And he let me. And I had a good year and a half, 7,200 miles on it. But guess what? My wife said, uh, I already started building arguments of how can I get another one with the insurance check. And I thought, she's never going to go for it again. And we went for a walk the other night, and she said, uh, you got the green light. I'm not going to get in the way if you want to get another motorcycle with that money. And up until then, I'm already mad at her for thinking I'm not going to be able to do it. But once I heard I had the green light, guess what? I started thinking about it. I started remembering the screech of tires, the grinding of metal, hanging on to the front bumper of that car, and I'm like, you know what? I don't even think I want another motorcycle. So as soon as she got out of the equation where I couldn't blame her, I had enough sense to know that's not really what I want to do at 62 years old. We'll do something a little more productive. So I'm done. I got a couple of scriptures quickly that make more sense to me now. Because what I want to challenge everybody to do here is never ever to be content as one of those frogs sitting on a log that made a decision. What I would like you to do is be this guy. That guy. This guy. The other frog that's diving in the pond. That guy. That's why I think in the New Testament, when somebody received Jesus Christ, they got baptized immediately. Jesus said, you're not sitting on this log with a decision right into action, pal. You're going to let all your buddies know you made that choice. I'm pushing you into action immediately. Baptism didn't save them, but it was like, you're out there now, pal. You're in the game. The scriptures make sense to me now, if anyone wants to be my follower, Jesus said, he must deny his selfish ambition, take up his cross, and follow me daily. You only get 24 hours to do this gig. He said, anyone who hears my teaching and does them is wise, but anyone who hears them and doesn't obey is a fool. And probably my favorite new one, faith without works is dead. 
James asked this question. A man says he has faith, but he has no works. Let me ask you, does that kind of faith engine save you? And the answer is no. A genuine faith will propel you into action. That's being a Christ follower. That's being a disciple. Your faith moves you to do, to act, to get in the game. Let's pray. Thanks, Lord, for the opportunity to share my life and your word. Pray that it was useful to somebody, and I set a new record by going 22 minutes over this service. But use it anyway, Lord, and uh, give these people a blessed holiday weekend safely. Thanks for loving us and giving us opportunities to serve you in Christ's name. Amen. We have